Hello and welcome to this special Nutmeg podcast. I'm Daniel Gray and joining us in the studio is a man who has been the soundtrack to so many lives. Welcome, Archie McPherson. Hi. Shortly we'll hear about Archie's new book, Adventures in the Golden Age, Scotland in the World Cup Finals 1974-1998. to But first, Archie, we're a few miles west of Shettleston as we sit now. Tell me what that word, those memories mean to you and what was the Shettleston that you grew up in? Um, it evokes Shettleton Juniors, the first team I ever watched. They wore the white shirt of neutrality because I lived in an area that was sectarianly divided and uh, Celtic and Rangers supporters all went to see the town, as we call them, Shettleton. And I remember the <clears throat> the the railway um, barriers that were up uh, which surrounded Greenfield Park, Shettleson, that I used to climb over to get into the ground and was caught once by a big Chukta policeman who wrapped me about the ears. But they were able to do that in those days, you know, without being taken up to court. Not that we would even know how to take them on legally in those days. Um, and it was that, uh, watching Tommy Doherty making his debut for Shettleson. Um, and he only played about four or five games for them before he was signed by, by Celtic. And you could tell right away the dock was really special. And he lived, he, he was born and brought up in a place called the Bowery in Shettleson, which uh, was just about, well, I would say about half a mile away from where I was born and brought up in 771 Shettleson Road. And um, uh, at, at, at that time, I think what I remember even more than football was politics because I was brought up in a very political household who were all supporters at that time of the, the old ILP, the Independent Labour Party, which then became absorbed into the Labour Party itself. So between three, three institutions stay in mind. One was Greenfield Park. The other was Shettleson Public Library. Um, and the other one was a little area in Shettleson where the public spe- speakers used to come and speak, ranging from communists to the SPGB, Socialist Party of Great Britain. Um, no Tories, I have to say. It wasn't as comprehensive as that. So you had your own speakers' corner and soapbox orators in Shettleston. Oh, yeah, they had. The, the people would... Uh, I can't remember the name of the street now particularly, but uh, they would stand up and speak. Uh, and I had one of my uncles was a, a member of the Communist Party, a great believer in Stalin and so on. And what I found of the uh, political area at that time was the great um, learned feel you got amongst people who were self-educated. Didacticism was mm. alive and well in Shettleson, that's for sure. Uh, and they went to the Shettleson Public Library. As I mean, that's where I, I learned more in Shettleson Public Library than I did in my first 15 years in school because of my general reading. Um, and uh, so we talked football and politics and religion. And um, it was a great upbringing uh, because of that. You felt you, you were um, stretching out across the whole breadth 
uh, of different factors that uh, exist in society at that time. That self-teaching thing's very important before we go on to football. When I read up and wrote a book about Scots that fought in the Spanish Civil War, there were many from Shettleston and many from across Glasgow and beyond. And self-teaching, self-reading, now that you mention it, was very important, wasn't it? Have we lost that? Yes, and I'll tell you, one of the reasons was that they boasted about what they read. I mean, there was a, 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 there was a feeling of getting on in life, of getting away from their own environment, by saying they had read Ernest Hemingway or John Dos Passos um, or uh, some of the, the, the political books that were written at the time. And it wasn't just about politics, it was literature itself. And, of course, they were all great Burns lovers, particularly my father. Um, so all of that went on adjacent to the, the talk about uh, uh, politics and, and football mm. and religion, all intertwined. All in their own way, an escape from the today as well, from the here and now. Football, you know, traditionally has been an escape, especially for the working man, I suppose. So they had that much in common. Yeah, I, I, I mean, my father was a footballer and he played for Kings Park, which was the origins of Stirling Albion. Yes, that was bombed during World War uh, Two, And I, I can tell you a story about that. During the Clydebank Blitz, I remember I went to the uh, library where one of the researchers in Stirling, good lad, and he's a, a Stirling Albion fan, did a whole research on my father who signed for King's Park, which later became uh, Stirling Albion. And uh, what happened was, uh, during the Clydebank uh, Blitz, some of the German bombers had been left with their ordnance. And to make sure they got back to Germany, they would drop bombs anywhere just anywhere at all. And I remember the night we were all taken out to an air raid shelter, which wasn't fully built. It had no roof on it, but you just felt... I didn't feel, because I was too young at the time, I've just got these... I was very, very young. But they, they were pointing out the, the lights in the sky of the German planes passing over, and one of them dropped a bomb on King's Park, which finished it as a ground, and ultimately it became... Uh, Stirling Albion and the point about my father was he was a baker so he had to work night shifts uh, come off night shifts in Shettleson get into Queen Street and take the train through to Stirling and play football there he was also a sprinter he, he ran professionally he couldn't possibly make it under these circumstances and he played centre forward for Shettleson as well but he was never going to make it uh, under these circumstances. Uh, so he was a decent player who didn't quite make the higher grade. So football in the blood and in the bones and in the area, really, for you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. From wee Heedies playing in the close. Describe the games in the street. That's what I wanted to hear. Well, we we played 40 aside. You know, sometimes it was like uh, the battlefield of Passchendaele after a, after the rain and uh, we had dustbins as the, as the goals. And we had marvellous players, absolutely much better than me. Marvellous players, dribblers, control, who never came to anything because they ended up with wine, women and song. Well, maybe <laughs> in the pub more often than the, the shooter. But you could, tell, you could tell the background and the upbringing would be a resistance to them making it as an athlete, that's for sure. Do you think linking 
to today, there's a very simplistic argument, but is it a true one that the lack of street games is what leads to the lack of international class players for Scotland and for England, really? Well, one, there are not enough boys playing in that kind of football, that's for sure. Uh, I mean, uh, Walter Smith they pointed out to me that the boys would, you know, there's been a lot of talk about academies. Indeed, there's a, a piece in, in in Nutmeg about academies and the worthwhileness of it. Walter, when he was a manager of Scotland, said to me, "The boys coming into the academies aren't good enough. Mm. So what can you do with them? So the setting up of academies, and I think it's a very good piece in Nutmeg about that, isn't of itself the answer. It's the material." And the material doesn't come down the right way. My two grandkids went to Hamilton Ackies for coaching. They went once a week. They went on a Tuesday night, and I used to take them. The mother and father used to take them. They were well looked after. They were well coached. There was no complaint about that. But it was once a week. They never kicked a ball after that. They didn't go into the streets to kick a ball. No playing for the there sheer was, joy. There was... They never played for it. Well, eventually they would play for a team as they got older, uh, but not all that much. But they didn't play regularly enough and they didn't mill around with other people, uh, 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 actually slumming, you could put it that, uh, that way. And uh, because of that, they didn't, uh, they didn't uh, elevate to the, the, the kind of standards they should have as, as they did in the past, mm-hmm. where you... As Walter himself said, he, he would go out at nine o'clock in the morning, come in for a jilly piece, um, go back out again, and at midnight he would go back into the house again. Football, football, football. That's gone. Totally gone. And so you cannot replicate these conditions in academies. You, you, you just can't do it. I mean, they'll take Rangers, who have got a magnificent uh, setup. Um, but you have to say to yourself, did they need to spend all that money? I mean, the story uh, of that, of Rangers, is that uh, I remember being down in Manchester with Andy Walker, my analyst when I was a commentator, and uh, one of the Rangers, we were staying in the Rangers Hotel, and one of the um, uh, guests, they'd taken people down there, and he came across us and said, uh, you know, I think Rangers have made a big mistake. What do you mean? He said, well, um, we were building a hotel at the Copeland Road end of uh, Ibrooks, which would have brought, brought them in money. But one day we were doing the, uh, the uh, deep digging with the hammers on and so on. And John Gregg came across and said, look, stop, stop. And he said, what do you mean? Too much noise. And now the whole project's over. Because Dick the Advocate had said at the... Um, board meeting, I want a training ground. And if you don't give me a training ground, I'm off. Uh, so he put the gun to the set, and of course David Murray, because he was successful advocate, gave him Murray Park at huge cost, which you could trace right down to Rangers' problems. Mm-hmm. So building, a, a creating an academy isn't it? You, Falkirk have given up their academies, you know. And you, you might say, well, it's very regretful. But as long as somewhere boys are getting a game of football regularly, it doesn't matter if they're missing out maybe 
palatial surroundings. Because in some ways, there's a worry for me that the academy system and all of this regimented practice and, um, you know, you hear of boys signing for Hibs or whatever, and it means they can't play with their mates in the school team. And in the end, they, they just fall out of love. They lose what made them kick a ball around in the yeah, first I did place. Yeah, I did a, an interview with the director of education for Lanarkshire, Mr O'Neill, for a book I wrote called uh, Flower of Scotland with a question mark. And uh, I, I personally consider it the best book I've written, even taking into the Jock Steen thing. Um, and uh, he said there were six boys at St. Patrick's School in Coatbridge who were signed by Celtic. They weren't allowed to play for the school team because they were with Celtic. Not one of them kicked a ball for Celtic ever. Hmm. And even when they were there... And I, 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 I use Celtic as an example because they're the premier club at the moment, but the other clubs are doing the same. Rangers, Aberdeen, they were all doing it, but Rangers in particular, uh, Celtic in this particular instance. Um, they never kicked a ball for Celtic eventually, and they never played with their mates. They missed the peer group encouragement, uh, development, because of that. There was a boy played for... Uh, Hibs and Hibs did the same refused to let him play for the school team and the school team was in that school it was at Queensferry uh, other place near the, the fourth road bridge uh, but it'll come back to me the name of the school and um, Hibs let him go and he went to Falkirk and Falkirk said yeah you can play for the school they went on and won the Scottish secondary shield because in school teams if you have one outstanding player, <laughs> you can, as I, I play school football, if you have one outstanding player, it can take you to the highest. Yes, you, and the rest are all average. Yeah. But one brilliant player can... can and, and, that's you, and, what and you hear about him across town. Everyone knows yeah. about him. Yes, and that's... A, so I had an argument once in the BBC with uh, Sandy Clark, who was at Aberdeen at the, at the time, assistant manager or coach, uh, saying, you know, this is just ridiculous. These boys should be able to play. Kenny Dalgleish would play three times on a Saturday. He would play in the morning for the Life Boys of the BB. He would play for an amateur team. And then at night, he would play uh, for another youth team. It didn't do him any harm. Mm. So I think this over-regulation, which, if you put it as a structure, seems ideal, it's not really producing anything worthwhile. So maybe when you see Falker giving up the, oh, this, this is terrible... But maybe it's realistic. Well, we shall see, shan't mm. we? Before we move on from this more reflective section, um, you'll have been asked this before, of course, but I'm nothing if not tired and lazy. Did young Archie McPherson in those street games commentate on himself? No, I never did. No, uh, uh, I, I, I had absolutely uh, no childhood ambitions to be anything other than, at, at that stage, a politician. I wanted to be a politician. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A, a good, a good ILP. I, I used to do speeches. Um, uh, and I've been interested in politics uh, all my days. Uh, I've always been a Labour man. And um, politics was my first, really my first interest. And when I got to school, I went into debating societies, of course. It was a pain in the backside, I'm sure, to, to, many, to many people. Um, because I lived mostly in Tory areas subsequently, you know, I was always in the minority. 
And um, so that that was my my first real ambition to get to get to Parliament. And of course, it foundered along the way, or floundered along the way. That's very clear then that those influences of the library, of the soapbox mm-hmm. orators and of football have had a mark on your life right yeah. until now. Yeah. The book comes out at the end of April. It's called Adventures in the Golden Age. Just tell us about it. What's the idea? Why have you written it? Well, I, I wrote it, first of all, um, because I needed to write again. If you've done, done seven books as I have done, something, an incubus takes over and you need to keep writing. It's not, maybe need to keep writing is the wrong expression. You feel you can write. And it's picking, to be realistic, it's picking the right subject. It's not just a case, I tried a novel which didn't, I mean, almost to a point I disowned it because it didn't work out quite the way I thought it would do. So I had to get back onto a, um, a, another level again, something I was really acquainted with. And it struck me that um, nobody else that I can think of had done all 18 World Cups with Scotland as a commentator. There had been journalists who've who've done that. Uh, And that because of my travels with the Scottish team, that uh, I wanted to fill that in and felt, yes, I can do this. Now, the interesting thing was I had written about World Cups before, fleetingly, in my other books, you know, just touching it Mm. here and there, but not in any great depth. So this time I felt... And they were mostly autobiographical things. This I had to um, target to uh, other people, the players, the managers, the journalists. So I sat down and and started to to plan um, to write that. And um, looking back, uh, it, it was simply taking a historical narrative, pop history, you might almost call it, so I sat down and, 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 and planned it uh, that way and determined to ensure that it wasn't a cut-and-paste job. Yes, I have quotes from newspapers. Of course I have, at timely points. But only about 3 or 4% of the book is about that. The rest are interviews. And I've done it in document. Well, at least I think I've done it in documentary style, as if you were watching a documentary with the interpolations of, of the different players at strategic times. Now, histories of these games are well known, very well known, well covered, but seen from different angles, they always hopefully appear fresh. And that's what I've attempted to do. That's a really nice way to take the reader along with you. It strikes me, and this is not just an Englishman um, that that uh, is, is trying to get one up on Scotland or anything. My own national team are hardly any great shakes. It's amazing to think that the very last World Cup that you write about was the last one, obviously, that Scotland were at, 1998. That word history, suddenly it is history, isn't it, to some people? It is, uh, yes. It's, it's getting longer and longer. For example... Um, I was watching Scotland's game in, you'll have to help me out here, the last World Cup, the game they played away from home, which was, uh, was it, uh, um, it was either Slovakia or... Sa- or Slovenia. Slovenia. One of the two. Thank you. 
Um, the memory's not all up right. And um, I was watching it, and Scotland scored, as you know. I got a call from my grandson who was in the union, the students' union at Stirling University, and you should have heard the babble that was going on there. He says, oh, there's nothing like this. And they were on the tables, you know. We're on our way, sort of feeling. And then I never heard from him again. <laughs> and, you know, I felt as much anguish about him and his generation as I did that night in Saint-Étienne, the very last time when we trudged off the field defeated again. Um, and it, it, it bore home to me just how far away we are from what actually happened. That is why my title is, is about challenging adventures in a golden age. Because at that time, we were miserable. After each World Cup, we were miserable. We had terrible anticlimaxes, terrible fear of what we judge to be terrible failures. But the total experience, I defy anybody who either played from 74 to 98 to say that they didn't get something beneficial out of being at the World Cup, which is why I went for the word adventures. Because adventures doesn't necessarily mean... <clears throat> you simply sail through uh, unimpeded and without uh, uh, problems. And I got that, the word adventures from William Goldman's book, Adventures in the Screen Trade, which, uh, remember, he wrote about Hollywood, nobody knows anything. And uh, the kind of up-and-down nature that still makes that place, Hollywood or Scotland in the World Cup, rather special. Uh, and of all the anecdotes and the things that happened either to me or to the players during that time. And who did you speak to for the process of, of, of recall and research? Well, I, if you go back to 74, um, there are 30 players altogether, just over 30, maybe 33 players I, I talked to and interviewed. Um, starting with Joe Jordan, who's, um, uh, as you probably know, Scottish icon for getting us to the World Cup in the first place with his with his uh, headed goal and his toothless grin, as you can <laughs> probably remember. Lou McCarry, Debbie Hay, Tam Forsyth, all these players in 74, all the way through to the last voice, which was Colin Henry, who has the last thing to say uh, in the book. Um, all, all of them, actually looking back in, with affection, on it, even though there was disappointment. Mm -hmm. And that's a good thing about it. Yeah, I was interested to know if there's a general mood. Is it is it from the players and managers? Nostalgia, even? Because they're, they're so far yes. apart from it now. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of, of nostalgia. It was, it was remarkable going over the ground again, for me personally, of all the travels that, uh, that I had. Because what I did, I did a lot of pre-World Cup work, like going to Peru to see uh, um, Peru playing in a friendly against Argentina. So you were sent going pay, to paid Chile. for to go and do that. Yeah, going yeah. to Chile. You had an article in Nutmeg about that Chilean venture. Um, I've got a lot more to add about that, so Nutmeg hasn't covered it exclusively. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lot to add about that because I, I went on that trip and I, there is a section in the book where about 74, I've gone, I've italicised 
some of these things that come to mind every time you mention Argentina to me, mm. which have nothing to do with football. Bullet holes on Sheila Cassidy's wall, Ali McLeod almost drowning and was saved in Leblanc Beach in Brazil. Um, the, the bullet holes in the dressing room in the Chilean stadium. A, a whole series of things that have nothing to do with a game of football, but to do with external influences that affected uh, football at the time. And um, uh, that's the sort of thing I, I've tried to emphasise. And the players have been marvellous. Uh, I mean, I've, I, I spent an hour on the phone with, with Mo Johnson, whom, curiously enough, even though I did his one of his, in, uh, not an interview with him, but a press conference with him, I didn't see very much of. And this is the first long interview I had with him on the phone from uh, Florida. And I, I always can remember the day that I got a phone call from my son when I was still with the BBC. And he said to me, Dad... Um, I've heard a rumour that Mo Johnson is about to sign for Rangers. Now, this is my son. Uh, he said, in the office here, they're talking about I've heard a, a whisper. I said, son, if Mo Johnson signs for Rangers, I'll be the next Pope. <laughs> and he said, no, I'm hearing that. Ten minutes later, I got a call from Reporting Scotland, BBC, um, and there's a documentary about reporting Scotland on uh, 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 BBC One um, saying, Archie, you better go to Ibrooks because we've been told that something very special is happening. And I said, oh, my God, I'm the next Pope. <laughs> so uh, off I went. And there he was, and they had given... I remember climbing up the marble staircase at Ibrooks, and one of the photographers had done his stuff, was coming down, and I said, is he... And the photographer just nodded. <laughs> he is. And there he was in a, a, a jacket. Somebody had got my Rangers blazer and it was too big for him. He's, his hands were hardly dangling out the, the sleeves. And it was, it was quite... There was people outside mourning about it already. Uh, it was quite remarkable. And um, so, curiously enough, he'd known of me. He'd known of me and so there was no problem uh, talking to him about his uh, international experiences and his deep, deep regret that he didn't play with Ali McCoist in the very first game against Costa Rica. Mm. Many, a regret held by many, I imagine. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that. I can't uh, imagine Mo Johnston's voice at all. Do any of the players or managers, whether for this book or otherwise, ever pull you up on a bit of critical commentary that, you, that they remember? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Too many to mention. Well, not too many to mention, but one or two were quite dramatic. Alec Ferguson, of course, and Alec, with whom I was extremely friendly and whom I uh, gave moral support to in Mexico when he had fallen out with the uh, president of the the, uh, the, the, the secretary of uh, the FA, SFA, uh, Ernie Walker. Uh, but he fell out with me big time because I criticised his goalkeeper. And we had a Barney in Easter. This is about a couple of months before he went to Manchester United. And he knew my wife well. He'd been in our house. And he had a Barney with me. 
at Easter Road prior to a game there, just shortly before he went to United, uh, that would have uh, scared a horse and panicked, <laughs> you know. So, yes, these, these things happened. Jock Steen, John Gregg banned me from Ibrooks. Um, Jock Steen lacerated me from time to time. They're all worth recounting because at least one of our three listeners is uh, under the age of 30. So, you know, yeah. I, I think, well, some people might have heard of and remember them indeed. I think they're, they're worth yeah, re- so, recalling. So they're aware, but nothing that, um, y- you know, was too traumatic. No. no. It's sort of part and parcel of the whole it is. operation. You accept it, yeah. I'm interested, well, the, the Ali McLeod incident, which I know nothing about, but in those extras that will be in the book, because only you saw them, or only a few mm. of you that were there. So if I give you those World Cups, if I say to you, first of all, 1974, what, what are those images, if you like those italicised bits and stories that come into your mind, 74 being the first World Cup that you covered? Yeah, the, the the first game that Scotland played um, against Belgium, because to pe- be per- perfectly fair, uh, or perfectly candid and honest, we had all left on a flight with a lot of grog <laughs> in store for everybody. We were ingenues. And I think a lot of the Scottish players were suffering a hangover when they played Belgium. But at least they gave that impression. It was an awful game, and this is prior to to uh, going to, we're going to play Norway next and so on. And then in, in Norway, this was continued when uh, two of the players, Jimmy Johnson and Billy Bremner, got um, uh, broke curfew, did a bit of drinking and so on, you know, which gave the impression that the whole Scottish team were drinkers, which wasn't true. I mean, Kenny Dalgleish, Danny McGrain, players like that, I never touched a, a drop, you know. Uh, but it gave that um, Joe Jordan another one, and the press latched the, the foreign press in particular, and our own press latched onto that, um, so that eventually, I mean, it was a scandal throughout Europe. People forget that the Scottish drinkers, they felt that beer bottles were being carried in the team hamper, you know. Uh, and would you believe seventy four produced a kind of syndrome that was identified all the way through to 98, all the way through, especially in 78, where the press was sent out to look for drinkers, mm. you know. And that was most unfortunate because the, 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 just because a couple of miscreants uh, set that uh, tone, if you like, uh, in relationship with the press. So that 74 was about redemption, particularly from Bremner, because Bremner was immense. I think one of his performances against Brazil was one of the best performances I've seen by a Scottish player. And they redeemed themselves. Somehow, if you read the, the, the first parts of 74 in my book, you might think I'm, I'm really um, scandalising them. But the book is about redemption, because at the end of that, that piece about is how triumphant they were and getting over the, the terrible criticism they got early on. Billy Bremner's an interesting example for me. Do you feel he's had quite the plaudits he deserved? No. No, I don't. And no. Is that because he played most of his trade, you know, for Leeds rather yes, than... Yes, yes, although I, I wouldn't overestimate that. Yes, I, I think there's an emphasis on, on uh, where he played, rightly enough, 
Uh, I remember he scored a brilliant goal against Celtic uh, in the semi-final at Hamden. Um, and uh, was a warrior who had a reputation for a bevy. Um, didn't look the fine, upstanding athlete that, that one might e- ideally expect of a, a Scottish captain, but was a, a fighter, really was a fighter. I remember the famous photograph of of Dave Mackay gripping him and lifting him by the throat yeah, and so the, on. the great football Yeah, exactly. He was a great player. And um, uh, in, in, in that sense, I hope it comes through, I hope it comes through, that he he saved Willie Almond. I mean, he took over the the inspirational qualities that I think were lacking managerially at that time. Um, and I remember Alec. I've interviewed Alec Smith, who's just announcing his retirement from Falkirk. Lovely man, great coach. Very un- unfortunate in football because he he won a cup and he could have won more with Aberdeen and so on. And he was a great supporter of Largs uh, and the so-called Largs Mafia. And um, he was Billy Bremner's best man at his wedding, loved him enormously. They didn't come through any particular coaching schools. They came from the School of Hard Knocks and, and were successful in their different ways. He, he might not like some of the things I've written about Brendan is the earlier part of that because of the drinking and so on. But uh, as I say, as I keep saying, it's about redemption, about how he redeemed himself. We've talked a bit about 78 already and there's going to be lots about it as it's an anniversary year. A documentary, I believe, is being made. So what about 1982? Documentary about? About 78, I think. Oh, 78, yes, I'm I'm taking part in that. Yes, I imagine you'd be. So we've talked a bit about that. So what about memories of 1982? 1982, um, I think probably (laughs) that Laurel and Hardy collision between uh, Alan Hansen and Willie Miller, which caused me no end of pain when Scotland looked as if they might just get through against uh, the Soviet Union. I call them Russia in the book, by the way. I know somebody technically say they were the Soviet Union or Soviet Federation, uh, but we called them Russians. Hopefully they won't come for you anyway. No, no, exactly. <laughs> Stay out of chain restaurants. <laughs> exactly. And... Um, Allegedly. Uh, that, that comes to mind. That, that's a, a negative thing to say. But that, that was something... I remember Andy Walker came down the stairs of the stadium that day and said to me, only we could have done that. Mm. Uh, when they had played so very well, they had a scare against New Zealand when New Zealand came back against them. They had played bravely uh, against Brazil but made the huge mistake of scoring far too early in the game with a toe poke, as Jimmy Hill said. <laughs> and um, uh, There's those things that Scots never forget, those phrases. No. There's no. a lovely piece in Nutmeg Issue 7 by Kenny Piper about finding an old scrapbook that he'd made about that World Cup, and it's all the same references that come. And it's marked in the supporter's psyche as, it, as, as much as it is for a professional like you that was yes, there. Yes, yes, indeed. And um, uh, then the final game um, against uh, Russia, which was... Again, vastly disappointing. Mm. And through to 86, what comes to your mind? Uh, 86, uh, probably uh, the last game again uh, against Uruguay, against 10 men for virtually the whole game. And you felt Scotland would never score. 
Uh, Stevie Nichol had the best chance of the game and missed something. Bremner's miss against Brazil is always brought up. But uh, as the players will testify in the book, there was never any chance of Bremner scoring that. Logistically, he wasn't in the right position to score. Whereas Stevie Nichol should have scored. And the problem with Stevie Nichol is he took umbrage with uh, uh, Andy Roxburgh and um, Craig Brown eventually for some of their methods, um, overlooking the fact that if he had scored against Uruguay, Scotland would have got through in that particular time. And again, obviously the management of of uh, Alec Ferguson at, at, the, at the time, who would never be, uh, compared to all the other managers, would never be considered other than a temp. And what about 1990 beyond Costa Rica? What do you remember of, of Italy itself, of the stadiums and atmospheres? I suppose I'm asking with self-interest because it's the first World Cup I remember and, and was completely electrified by as an eight-year-old. Well, the, the stadium, the Sampdoria Stadium, was absolutely brilliant. It was a superb stadium, only about 50,000 or so compared to the, the giant stadiums in Italy and other places like in Milan and, and Rome. But it was very 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 intimate. I thought it was one of the best stadiums I'd ever been in. And filled with the Scots, of course, in that first fateful game against Costa Rica, um, you felt, how could we lose? And indeed, <laughs> Ali McCoy said, in my book, said to me, by the way, read out her team again. I read the team out. He says, for God's sake, how could we have lost? You know, and that's how we felt coming away from that ground. So um, uh, the, the the last game was in, I think, the worst stadium I've ever been in, and that was the Stadia del Alpi, a cold, concrete place that had no atmosphere at all. Mm. I've been there when... Celtic have played Juventus, Rangers have played Juventus and so on, and it just flat, it was cold and miserable. And Juventus knew that themselves because they've got out of it now and playing a new stadium. No atmosphere whatsoever. Um, and a terrible game, an awful game of football, that last game. And Brazil got a, a slippery goal. Uh, uh, I think a, a, a slight mistake by Jim Layton and so on. Um, terrible anticlimax. By 1998 in France, had we shifted into modern football and therefore less access for journalists, for reporters, for commentators to players, or were you still getting quite good access around the squad in France? Oh no, everything was regimented. It was very difficult to break through. And if you're in a World Cup in any case, you know, the, the security uh, conditions are, are quite uh, severe. Um, but I'll never forget that first game, the the World Cup opening game against uh, Brazil and the ticket scramble that was going on, and which I've written about because it, it had social consequences uh, in Paris for that opening game. Can you imagine opening game of the World Cup in Scotland against Brazil in Paris? It was just so tantalising. And um, the the very good efforts uh, against Norway, where they were organised, played well, should have won that game, should have won it easily, but didn't. And then the Morocco, and um, for all that I've interviewed the players, they still cannot understand why they were so poor that night. And do you have any view on that? Well, 
Yes. Remember, this was a squad that was called Dad's Army by some of the cynics. Mm. And I think age caught up with some of them. I think they were tired. Was there a sense in 98, and it's easy to say now, hindsight, etc., that the run may be coming to an end, or was it just Scotland always qualify? 94 was a blip, Scotland oh, no, always we, qualify. We'll be there in, in exactly. Uh, in the we, we expected to qualify uh, every time then. You, you had done, they had done uh, six World Cups out of seven. We missed out in the States, obviously. Um, and we expected, I think the Scottish supporters expected uh, a succession of, of World Cups coming in. No mm-hmm. question about that, yes. So that, that accentuates the grief, really, for those of you that remember the fact that you weren't really aware at the time, as you say in the title, this was the golden age. That makes it worse, doesn't it? Uh, yes, it does. And I, I think the golden age embraces the experiences of everybody, including supporters, supporters who went to places they would never have dreamt of. They were taken there uh, by football. Footballers who would never have gone uh, to that level. Everybody wanted to play at the World Cup and going to widely diverse countries. Uh, and, you know, th- there was a point where I thought I would um, involve supporters' stories about their adventures, but there was too much to write about the football and the footballers themselves. I just couldn't fit it in, except on one particular occasion, and that was in uh, 90 in Italy, where there was a proxy battle fought on the, the streets of Genoa between Wallace Mercer and the Hibs supporters, which was quite remarkable. That's tantalising. I won't, I won't, uh, won't let you spoil the book, although the blurb does promise bungs in brown envelopes, not for the reader, but the <laughs> re- reca- recounting of. Could you give us any more on that? And just the way we negotiated getting interviews with the Scottish team at the time, which was, let's say, unconventional. <laughs> Very unconventional. Um, before we wrap up, Archie, the last time I saw you, you told a magnificent tale of the film Train Spotting, which, and your involvement in, or awareness of at the time of your commentary being used. And I suppose for many of us growing up in England, we'd heard your voice but not quite connected it, maybe in the Olympics and things like that, mm-hmm. with, with the, the icon really you are in Scotland. And so train spotting was the time when millions came sure. to know. Sure, well, it, I, I was with Eurosport at the time and I got a call from uh, Danny Boyle, <clears throat> who later went on to win the... Academy Award, as you you know, for direction, asking me uh, if I could come across to Soho to a sound recording studio Um, because the the sound quality of um, the commentary had faded a little bit too much and there was too much crowd interference and so on. He wanted it redone, roughly the same words, but not necessarily, but redone for this film he was doing. And he sent me a script um, but uh, I didn't really read the script. I read the fee he was giving me, <laughs> and that was enough for me. So I flew across 14 times we did this to get what he wanted right, really urging me on. I didn't bother going to the... I got an invite to go to the uh, the premiere, but I didn't bother going to it. I was in Glasgow, and I think I was in France at the time. And I didn't even see the film until... Oh, months, months later, when somebody, one of my French friends, forced me to go and see it, and I wasn't wanting to see it. 
because I didn't like, I couldn't read the book. I mean, I tried to read the book and couldn't read the book. Uh, and I went along with these, uh, the group of my French colleagues from Eurosport and I think about four of us. And there was this scene which was of, uh, how can I put it, um, over-familiarity between <laughs> men and women in this apartment when Renton is having off with his girlfriend and they're watching and listening to the commentary on the game in Mendoza. And when he reaches his climax, he shouts out, I've never felt like this since I watched Scotland play. Archie Gamble scoring against Scotland. And uh, I think we both reached the climaxes <laughs> in that particular time. My voice and him in his bed. <laughs> Is that in your top five career highlights? Oh, it's haunted me through the years or followed me through the years. Absolutely, yeah. Well, adventures in the Golden Age, Scotland in the World Cup Finals, 1974 to 1998, is published by Black and White and available from April the 26th. But for now, Archie, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Best of luck with the book. Thank you.